The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number one, number 206. We are very close to the end of our fourth year, and we would like to thank you for listening. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven, evidence-based, holistic, and completely drug-free, step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. It's an anonymous phone call. They're there to help. Give them a call. Today we have an interview with a doctor. Her name is Ronit Lev. She was the first chief medical officer of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. She brought refreshing frontline medical experience to national health policy. She's a nationally acclaimed medical expert and speaker who continues to treat patients in the emergency department. As a mother of four, she relates to families who struggle. Lev uses data to drive change and and is frequently quoted in print and television media. Lev is duly board certified in emergency and addiction medicine, bringing over 25 years of experience treating the frontline cases of addiction. Without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Ronit Lev. Dr. Ronit Lev, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today. I know you are a busy dudette. It's a, a pleasure and honor to be with you, Joni. Thank you. And you do your own podcast, right? I do. I launched a new podcast, 2021. Um, it's called High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. You could find it on uh, your regular uh, podcast platform. And uh, I have patients or, or listeners calling in with questions, and then I get experts from around the country, around the world um, to give answers. So it's, it's uh, educational, informative, and, and I'm getting some nice reviews. Wow, that's great. I think I need to find out from you how you do the call-in thing, because I don't think... I don't think we know how to do that, but let me, I digress. Let me go back. Um, you're, you're, a, you're an MD. How did you get, get involved in the whole area of addiction in terms of your medical expertise? How did you get, or how and why did you get there? How'd that happen? I'm an emergency physician and now I'm board certified in emergency medicine as well as addiction medicine. As an emergency physician, I've always been an you know, an active in my, my field. And a lot of what we see in the emergency department is related to substance use disorders. Um, back in uh, 2008, I had parents reach me as a leader of the medical community asking why are physicians writing all these prescriptions while people were dying. And at that time, we weren't really aware. And, and really, these parents 
um, who've had children affected by the opioid epidemic are the ones who drew me to this field and becoming an advocate on their behalf and um, organizing the medical community to to be engaged. And uh, they inspire me to this day. That's that's amazing. So do you do you talk to medical doctors in terms of like about prescribing opioids? Is that is that something that you do? That was the very first project that we were engaged in. You know, the opioid epidemic started with prescriptions in the 1990s. And in order to fix a problem, you really have to understand where it came from. So it, it came from a push on a medical community to prescribe. Um, and you have to acknowledge that uh, we we were taught not to judge other people's pain, that you know, no matter what kind of pain you had, you, you know, you had the right to uh, have improvement on a scale of one to 10, you know, uh, theoretically, you should be much improved by the time you leave the hospital. And so that was the medical training at the time. And that was a mistake. So it wasn't training physicians, it was untraining and getting the right information, which is actually a lot harder to do. But I believe that we've done that. Um, we, we've had a call out to the medical community to um, un understand the error and change the education. Um, and if you look at opioid deaths from prescriptions now, those are dramatically improved. Now, the issue of substance use disorder has not improved. And that's actually the silver lining in the whole problem of the opioid epidemic and the addiction is years ago, before 1990, the medical really not engaged in this problem. And there were a few isolated doctors who were engaged. But as a whole, it was like, okay, well, these are people who have addiction. That's you know, that's not my thing. You know, I'm in the emergency department, I'm saving lives, or I'm a primary care doctor, I'm treating diabetes and high blood pressure or cancer, or other things. And addiction was a completely different thing. We would just tell people, well, you know, just stop using heroin, stop using meth and be, you know, as, as, as easy that as that could be. The silver lining is because the medical community was part of the supply chain of, of opioids, we became in engaged in the solutions. And it, being engaged in the solutions even exists today. And I see that going on to the future. Well, the whole field of medicine is now much more engaged and understands that addiction is a chronic disease of the brain, a chronic relapsing disease of the brain that has relapse rates, just like asthma or diabetes or high blood pressure um, relapse has, and is much more engaged than we have been in the past in integrating addiction health with um, physical health and medical health. We're not there yet. We still have a long ways to go, but I see us moving in the right direction. You, thank you. You know, it's interesting that you say that because we have focused a couple different times um, in the podcast. In fact, one that just went up recently was an interview with Charlotte Bismuth, who's a former attorney, and she actually prosecuted a doctor in New York who was overprescribing opioids. And so what my point is that we've talked to um, people who have highlighted the story of the bad guys, if you will. And so I mean, we know that not all doctors are pill pushers. We know that. But it's just kind of nice to hear the and, other and most, side of it. Most aren't. Most aren't. I right. I published research called The Death Diaries, where I looked at every single person in San Diego County, a county of um, 
you know, 3 million people who and were like 10%, 1% the entire United States population. And we looked at every single person who died from a medication overdose, whatever that medicine would be. And we compared it to what they were prescribed for a year before they died. I call that the death diaries and really learned a lot about who's prescribing as well as the prevention and really use that as my guide as how to, um, you know, change education and improve policies. Um, and I could tell you that the majority of physicians have sacrificed a lot and really for the right reasons because they care about people um, and they you know, want to alleviate suffering. And there are some bad ones. Every profession has bad guys. And um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, throw away the keys and lock them away because they are a bad reflection on on the majority, the overwhelming majority of physicians who really, and even now in the pandemic, really sacrifice themselves um, for the benefit of others. Yep. Dr. Lev, I have a, I, you, when you were first talking, you, I just had this question out of nowhere who yeah. trains doctors on the drugs and what the side effects are and how to properly use them? Who does that? Um, that's it. Starts in medical school, pharmacology, pharmacology training. I, you know, I have a daughter, uh, two daughters in medical school now, first and second year, and they're they're getting it from year one, and it continues throughout your entire education, and it continues to this day. I mean, we're in in a global pandemic. We're starting new medications that we've never heard of, right? On to treat COVID, um, and that changes, and 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 we learn, we learn, um, you know from our colleagues, um, from, you know, the, uh, the drugs itself, uh, indications, um, you know, so we're, we're, we're able to do that. Okay. But do the pharmaceutical companies, do they do any sort of training? I know they market to doctors. That was the big issue with Purdue Pharma, but do they do any sort of education with doctors on the different drugs? Yes, they they do. I'm in a little bit different position because I'm working in the emergency department and for, I don't know, 20 years, they're not allowed in the emergency department at all. <laughs> I have very little contact with them, but I think it is different in um, conferences and maybe doctor's office and they do provide education. Interesting. I just, I, I don't know, that just kind of like I say, the question just kind of crossed my mind. Yeah, and, and it's it's a valid point because there is still misinformation out there. I'll give you an example. Tramadol, it's an opioid. It's a synthetic opioid. And yet there are a lot of patients and doctors who believe that it's not addicting and safer than a hydrocodone. And that's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. That's that's false information. So it does, that still exists. Um, and where does that you know, false information come from? Does it come from the pharmaceutical company that Tramadol is not? I think it just not... comes from, yeah, they, okay. they market it as something, it's a synthetic opioid and it's not as addicting and it's safer. And somehow that, that gets construed and becomes kind of public knowledge, even though if you really look at the data, that's just not true. I was, and I may be, I'm uneducated for sure, but to me, an opioid is an opioid is an opioid and... In, in many ways, we well, talked about... I think the death, the death diaries tell you that too. It's, uh, you know, when, when you die, <laughs> that's kind of the ultimate uh, of, of what, um, you know, deaths are the tip of the iceberg of the entire um, problem of addiction. But that really, it doesn't matter why you took it or what you thought about it when you took it or why you needed it. If it's too much, you know, it can be fatal. Yeah. 
When you did the death diaries, just out of curiosity, was there anything during that mm-hmm. process that surprised you that you didn't know? Yes, definitely. Um, I was surprised at who was prescribing the most. Um, we know that um, primary care doctors prescribe the most overall, as it should be, right? They see the majority of the patients, most of diabetes, high blood pressure, and substance use. I was surprised that the number two was psychiatrist. And that really changed, you know, where where the education need to go to psychiatrists on their own patient population with their own death diaries to let them, let them know that, again, we're, they're thinking, well, this is an opioid epidemic, but benzodiazepines are number two on the on the medications that people died especially if they're doing it with an opioid so a psychiatrist may be giving the right medicines for that right patient and if they don't know they're getting opiates from somewhere else you now have a drug interaction yeah and that's why it's it's important for doctors to know all your medicines no matter where they're coming from yeah. even over the counter yeah that's fascinating and when you uh, mentioned benzos we've talked about this before in the podcast you know, the, our, our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, they can do completely drug-free withdrawal on heroin, for example, but not on benzos. On benzos, someone has to be stepped down because if you just cold turkey benzos, it can be fatal. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, it, that's, that's one of our episodes on high truce that will be coming up is an expert from the VA because they actually have the most experience with large populations and, and tapering off benzodiazepines and having best practices uh, for that. And we, we, we dedicated a whole show just on that. Interesting. Now, do veterans typically get prescribed benzos because of PTSD? Is that what is considered the treatment for that? Is that why? Actually, it's not the treatment for that. And it's not the treatment for anxiety, first line, and it's not the treatment for insomnia. And and that's what, you know, they're able to do is, again, change the education that, that most and physicians have. Um, so yeah, so it's actually not first line. The number one group of people who get benzodiazepines, you would be very surprised. It's actually older women who are prescribed um, benzodiazepines in, again, and why um, is that? For anxiety, why, why? Maybe for, for anxiety, anxiety, okay. sleep, habit, uh, again. But you just said right it's not the treatment for that. So there's a whole, well, just like we got our problem with the opioid epidemic with false kind of misinformation, now we have to undo that education with benzodiazepines as well. Amazing. I mean, that that's amazing. And, and things, well done. Things change. And yeah. yeah. And well done on your part in changing things. You know, I think that the more people in the medical profession, such as yourself, step up and start talking about issues like this, whether it's on our podcast or your podcast, I mean, it's a good thing. You know, you're going to have people listening and doctors, hopefully, that are going to go, oh, you know, maybe I need to learn more about what it is I'm doing. Um, we could probably have a whole... And we do that not not just through a, not just through a podcast, cause this, um, but... Uh, but we're working, for example, when I was a chief medical officer for ONDCP at the, at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, uh, Department of Health and Human Services published an opioid tapering guideline. And I chaired a safe prescribing committee and, re- and advocated that we should have a benzodiazepine tapering guideline, which didn't quite get done. But I mean, we're talking about this, not just on podcasts, but also on a national and local and system level. 
Yep. And benzos and antidepressants as well. There's with a lot of those, um, I, I will call them psychiatric medications, if you will, there is a danger to just stopping them. Do you know? Anyway, yes, you know. <laughs> you know, every, every medicine, there's a fine line of it being helpful and being a poison. Good point. I mean, everything, even water. Yep. I was an expert at a, on a, on a, from drinking too much water. So there, there's a, a, a fine line for everything. And that's why, and it's individual care. You know, what you hear on a podcast, that's not your medical advice. You need to, you know, kind of hear this information and you need to be an informed patient and informed consumer. Um, but really it's a one-on-one -on -one personalized discussion between you and your doctor. Yes. And you make a very good point. And we've made this point also on the podcast that you do have to be educated. And for, in, for example, we had, um, a woman on the podcast who's a pharmacologist, and she was pointing out that oftentimes you're prescribed a heavy-duty opioid when you have a sprained ankle. And what, what might work better for a sprained ankle might be some ibuprofen and an anti-inflammatory rather than an overall mm -hmm. systemic, you know, opioid. And, you know, I, I said mm -hmm. to parents listening, I said, you know, if you have a child who's playing sports you know, question it. If your child gets injured and is prescribed some sort of painkiller, question what it is, what it does, what the side effects are, because, you know, you, ultimately you're responsible for your own health. And so it's unfortunate. So many people yep. think, oh, well, the doctor said do it. I'll just do it. And you have two good points in there, Joni. One is related to youth. One and the other one is alternatives to opioids. And with youth, if you take you know, what happened with the opioid epidemic, it's like, right, you, you broke your arm, you need your wisdom tooth out, anything that happens at a kid at that age, you get, you know, Percocet, an opioid. But there's a certain percentage where that one pill will just trigger an addiction, just like that one sip of alcohol at That's that right. age. They'll, some people will be fine with it. And some people will be coming alcoholic from that first sip. You know, there's a genetic predisposition. If we can push that age until the brain is completely developed, which is age 25, even 27, we would have less people in the United States addicted. Yep. And so given that, since we know that, um, you really have to think as a youth, do we really want to give this kid opiate? I mean, they did, you know, sprain their ankle, but do we really need that? Yep. The second point is we have now alternatives to opioids. Um, so if you do break a bone, we could do a, a, a block, an anesthetic where you'll have zero pain and zero opioids. And I have a whole show on that um, called on Alto, Alternatives to Opioids, of uh, where um, I have an expert, uh, Dr. Uh, LaPietra, uh, come and talk about alternatives where you have, you know, a horrible condition like a kidney stone um, or a terrible headache or back pain and alternatives to using opioids that are actually actually even more effective. I think that's great. I want to say the name of your uh, podcast again. It's High Truths. And it's such a nice play on words. High Truths. Yeah, yeah High Truths. <laughs> yeah. Um, on drugs and addiction. Yeah. I like that. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 
314-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononohai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I was going to just tell a story. I think I've told the story before, but just to bring home the point that you said, and that is when, when my younger son was young, he was about six or seven, I think, he had a little trouble breathing sometimes. They never diagnosed it as asthma, but he would get a little short of breath sometimes. And I remember taking him to a pediatrician, and I wish I could remember the drug pre- she prescribed, but I can't remember what it was. I just happened to ask her, what are the side effects? And she said, oh, well, you might have trouble sleeping and have bad dreams and be hyperactive. And I said, okay, thank you very much. I never, ever put him on the drug. But when I brought him back the next year, she was outraged with me that I had not, in fact, given him this medication. Now, he outgrew this condition. I, I, you know, it wasn't asthma. Like I say, I think he, he had a couple of times where he had to do an inhaler. But it just, something just made... Was it a pill? Yeah. And something just made me want to know. Maybe Theophylline. If this was many years ago, it may have been Theophylline. Maybe. I, I, Maybe. I, you you could be right. But um, yeah, you have to question. And, and you also have to make sure, you were talking about drug interactions. You definitely have to make sure about that, that you let your doctor know if right. you're on something and he's prescribing something new. Do you, Are there any stories that you can share with us in terms of the um, emergency room and, you know, what, what you've seen and, and what you've had to do there? Of, of course, a, a big part of the emergency department before pandemic, during pandemic and after pandemic will be issues related to substance use disorder. Um, when you said drug interactions, the first thing that came up with is a campaign that we're um, heading now is to have pharmacies label prescriptions with drug interactions related to cannabis. There are a lot of states now that have legaled, that have legalized marijuana for recreational use and even I call it medicinal with quotes use <laughs> um, because it's not really treated as a medicine. I mean, you don't, um, it's not prescribed. Like I would prescribe an antibiotic for you for your strep throat. It, right. The cannabis is not really treated like a medicine, but they call it that. Um, but there are 100, 400 different drug interactions. And I, I urge your listeners to go to um, called drugs.com and put in cannabis, which is, or cannabidiol, which is CBD. And you'll see that there are 300, 400, 500 drug interactions and they're serious drug interactions. 
So, you know, when you go to the pharmacy, a prescription, it may say, you know, don't use with alcohol, don't take with milk, take with food. And, and we want pharmacies to start labeling medications that, that caution with marijuana products, especially since, um, you know, marijuana use is really going up. Um, and I'm seeing patients in the emergency department with drug interactions. For example, this would be a surprise to most people as I had an, an, a gentleman who came to the emergency department three times and admitted to the hospital for internal bleeding. And he needed blood transfusions. And he'd get in the hospital, he'd get a transfusion and they'd look him up with cameras and, you know, make sure the bleeding stopped. He'd go home a week later, come back again. And when I finally saw him on the third time, um, you know, I asked him about street like I do everybody. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a product from the 70s. I smoke every day and he may have smoked every day. But now he's an older gentleman who's on blood thinners and a heart stent. And he can't be using this anymore because that's causing a drug interaction with his blood thinner medications and his marijuana and causing him to repeatedly come into the hospital for internal bleeding. Scary. You would think that uh, marijuana causes internal bleeding. It doesn't by itself, but with drug interactions, it does. And that could even be fatal. Um, I can go on forever for stories <laughs> in the emergency department. You just think of like, you know, the last shift. But, um, you know, I want to make one point, too, that you said you, know, you were talking about. Yes. How with young people, if we could avoid giving them opioids until, you know, the brain is fully developed. I would like to put in a plug that if mm -hmm. there was a way we could put if we could raise the age for legalizing marijuana for anybody having it until maybe they're in their 20s or 30s, because marijuana also affects the young brain, the developing brain. Absolutely. And that's, I agree. And, um, you know, 18 years old, 21 years old, that's a legal age. But if we want to pick a scientific age, and you know, we're all about science now, then you would pick an age when the brain is finished growing. And that's 25, 27. You know, for my kids, I tell them 27. I And if you think about it, a lot of people are exposed to drugs when they go into college, and they're adults, and they're independent. Um, and it's a beautiful time, a time to really, you know, absorb and explore and learn. They're, they're, think they're adults, but their brain's not done growing. And they're very susceptible to addiction. As a matter of fact, using drugs at that age before the brain is finished growing is four to seven times more of a chance of developing an addiction than someone my age. Um, so if, if someone before that age uses just marijuana, it's tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, any illegal drugs, you know, prescription opioids, you know, then your chance because your brain is not finished growing it physically, you know, you could see that it has it finished myelinating. Myelin is the, the coating on your neurons. That's not done uh, and, and until age 25, 27, Interesting. mid 20s. All right, so now we need to campaign to get yeah. the um, the legal <laughs> age to be raised to 27 for anybody wanting to do marijuana. Um, you get people who come to the ER who are overdosing. Do they typically arrive in the ER having overdosed? I mean, tell us about an overdose experience and how you've used Narcan. So, to help and then, that. and Joni, you tell, oh, so 
so when we say overdose, people think of different things. I, um, we were talking about marijuana. So I was thinking about, you know, do you mean marijuana poisoning Sorry, no. or do you mean opioid, of, oh, you mean opioid overdoses? Yes. Um, and the most common thing now would be a fentanyl overdose. And do they come to the E? I hope so. Otherwise they're going to the morgue um, and they go there too. Um, so fentanyl overdoses in San Diego County, where I live, have doubled. Oh. It's, it's, it's horrible, doubled. And uh, nationwide for 2020 data, it's gone up 45%. Um, so our, our big problem with opioids now is illicit, uh, illegal fentanyl. And it's very de deadly. Only two grains, like two grains of salt could, could be enough to kill you. And so it only Gosh. takes a small amount. Um, so people who don't even think that they're and don't have a substance use disorder uh, made from a fentanyl overdose. And, and unfortunately, we've seen that painfully. Um, people are out thinking like, oh, you know, here's a pill of Xanax and dead. We've found fentanyl in um, the supply of heroin, um, methamphetamine, 25%, cocaine, 50% of the cocaine is um, laced with um, fentanyl. And then you could have illicit pills that look exactly like an oxycodone or a Xanax or a hydro, and it looks like a real pill and they take it and people drop dead. I, I have on, on an upcoming episode where I talked to a gentleman who um, look, saw a pill and he thought it was an oxycodone and it would you know, help him come down from a high of a different drugs. And he even Googled it and he looked at it and he almost died. Um, but luckily he got naloxone, which is the opioid reversal agent. We've even seen people who vape and their vape product had fentanyl in it. Wow. And that's why I really advocate that anybody who's using drugs have naloxone uh, with them or with their family and friends. And carrying naloxone or drugs is just like having an EpiPen for allergies. So really, anybody who uses drugs should have a prescription for naloxone, also known as Narcan. It's the opioid reversal agent. You should have one, no questions asked. And you should get one from your doctor or your pharmacy. And for some reason, you want one and you can't get one, I offer it for free on my website on hightruths.com. You can get a prescription for naloxone, download it, put your name. Frankly, it should just be over the counter. And uh, it's not for, you know, it'll take fears before that happens. In the meantime, people are dying and should just have access to naloxone. So if you can't get it from your doctor or your fee, um, then then no questions asked, just download a prescription and, and you should have one wow. at, at your home, at your rehab center, or, you know, that's your, that's your, like I said, it's your EpiPen for allergies. This is your naloxone for overdoses. And the reason is, um, even if you're not someone who's addicted to opioids, because we have fentanyl in the rest of the uh, drug supply, it doesn't matter what you're using. We've found fentanyl in it. And that's the reason naloxone, Narcan is so important. And whenever you use it, um, it's just a spray usually that goes in the nose. Um, you need to call 911 because um, if someone wakes up, they can have residual damage to their um, lungs and the rest of the body, depending on how quickly that was administered. Wow. Are you finding fentanyl in marijuana ever? We found it in vaping. Okay. We found in San Diego there was a reported case in a vaping product, allegedly maybe marijuana that 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 had fentanyl in it. Okay.
So what do you see in the emergency room, Dr. Lev? What are some of the things that you see happening as regards drugs? So we see issues with drugs every single day, every single shift in the emergency department. I see marijuana poisoning every shift, every day in the emergency department. I'm going in tomorrow morning and there will be marijuana poisonings. The what most does that common, mean? What does it mean, marijuana say, poisoning? What does that mean, yeah. right? <laughs> the most common poisoning that I see is related to mental health, is acute psychosis or a psychiatric crisis related to marijuana. People think of marijuana as a relaxing drug. Uh, and it's not. It's a different genetically altered plant than it was back in the 70s. And now it's very high potent THC content that causes psychosis and agitation, even violent reactions such as agitated delirium. And we see that every day in the emergency departments. A lot of complications related to marijuana. If we look at everybody who's admitted to a mental health ward uh, for psychiatric care, a great majority of, of them um, have, are positive for marijuana or methamphetamines. And so that is, that's the biggest have um, is, is one in mental health. And it can be permanent. Um, you know, if there's hope if you have a, a young person who's starting to use marijuana and has a psychotic break and they stop, they may recover, but if it continue using, that can turn into permanent schizophrenia. Okay, so just I want to so make I want to make a point yeah. here because a lot of people listening, we get flack when we talk about marijuana, and we're not talking about someone who's on some kind of low dose marijuana for pain. But if you're experimenting with marijuana and you're doing it for long, on long term, you could end up permanently in some sort of a mental facility, a psychiatric facility. Yeah, it, it definitely, and we, we see that on, our, on a regular basis, every actually every day. And just look at any mental health ward and, and in a place where it's legalized, and, and you'll see a great percentage of people who um, got there because of marijuana. We need to study, Dr. The, the other thing for people... <laughs> <laughs> we need to study so we can show the lawmakers um, it's not you know, a good idea. Sorry. Yeah, and and it's not about it's about your health. It's about caring about your health. It's, it's, it's a matter of something is legal or not. Is it is it healthy and is it the right thing for and your children and the people around you? Good point. Well, you make a very very good point about naloxone, also known as Narcan, and it's an unfortunate thing that we have to have it, but it will save lives. And as you say, when you look at the, the amount of d different drugs that end up with fentanyl in them that people don't know has fentanyl in it, um, it could prevent deaths. Yes. So I want to thank you for everything that you're doing. And you've done a lot of work to get Narcan more readily available, I believe. That was, isn't that one of the things that you worked on when you were in D.C.? Yeah, in D.C. and also locally and, and um, in California, there's a law to, that requires prescribing naloxone whenever you have someone on high opioids or an opioid plus a benzodiazepine, which is another dangerous combination to be taking a pain medicine and an anxiety medicine. You know, we were talking about drug interactions. That's also um, a, a have it.
Wow. Well, I can tell you one thing. If my do- doctor had me on a couple drugs and said, oh, and by the way, you also need this prescription for Narcan because you could overdose and die, I-, I would stop right there. But that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. just me. Yeah, that's well, I want to thank you for everything that you're doing. You are, you are, you're wearing a very important hat in the medical community. And I hope that if we have anybody listening who is in the medical profession, that they, if they don't know about everything you're talking about, that they get, get better educated and learn more about it. Because I think that education on the part of the medical profession, on the part of the consumer, it's got to happen. And I really appreciate everything you're doing, your podcast and all the work that you've done. Well, thank you, Joni. I appreciate that. But I also want to thank you and your program and your listeners and whoever's listening out there. You, I want to give them hope um, in in recovery and a better life. And the people who I've met who went through the difficult journey of addiction um, are just nicer, better human beings for it. Um, so there, there really is hope. It's a disease like any other disease. And there, there is uh, hope and, and future and a brighter future um, for that experience. Great message. Thank you so much, Dr. Lev. Thank you for listening. I thought that the information that Dr. Lev gave us was fascinating. Um, I had no idea about marijuana poisoning We've talked about the high levels of THC. We've talked about how people can get addicted to the new marijuana. And we've talked about a lot of, you know, the the detriment of it. But um, I guess I didn't realize that with prolonged usage of marijuana that psychosis can become permanent. And I don't know about you, but that's scary to me. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, when they were talking about how if you did LSD, you could have a deformed baby, I remember going, why would I want to do that? So I'm just saying, why would you want to have permanent psychosis or permanent anxiety or permanent depression or permanent any mental difficulty? So something to keep in mind, and we will talk to you again next week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.